Food We Need to Talk is funded by a grant from the Ardmore Institute of Health, home of Full Plate Living. So if you listen closely to our episodes, there's something that we mention a lot. I know. I know what it is. What is it? Exercise. Eddie, for once, I'm actually not talking about exercise. It's oh, something oh, oh. else. I know. I know. What is Your it? Your favorite. Peppermint mocha lattes. <laughs> First of all, it's called peppermint mocha. Oh, but oh not latte? Oh. Not, yeah, it's a peppermint. A mocha implies latte, okay? But you're you're close. We need a whole episode just on that. Okay, I would love... Starbucks, sponsor us, please. Then we can do a whole peppermint mocha episode. But no, in every episode, no matter what we're talking about, like it'll be like the randomest thing, and it'll be our food, our mood, our diet, whatever. And then somehow, some way... Every single episode involves some mention of the microbiome. I felt it in my gut. I knew we were going to talk about the (laughs) microbiome this time. I'm so glad that we're finally getting into it. This is one of the most exciting new areas of inquiry in science. Well, it's one of those things where it's like, once we find out about it, we're like, this relates to everything. It's like, at first it was just like, oh yeah, it's these bacteria in your gut. And then after that, it was like, no, this affects your mood. No, this affects how you eat. No, this affects your like, whatever. It just seems like it involves every single part of how you are in the world. And we still don't really understand what's going on. So on today's episode, what is the microbiome? How does it affect our health? And what are we doing that's helping or hurting it? I'm Yuna Yata. And I'm Dr. Eddie Phillips, Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School. And you're listening to Food We Need to Talk, the only health podcast that's going to tell you that it's time to get dirty and play outside. Welcome to today's episode. Today we are talking to Dr. Erica Sonnenberg, who is a senior research scientist in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Sonnenberg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So first, I think the thing we have to talk about is actually what is the microbiome, because we all talk about it all the time. I don't think I've really heard people define exactly what it is. Yeah, so the microbiome is a collection of microorganisms, bacteria, some viruses that inhabit our gut. Um, So this is everywhere from, you know, our mouth all the way to our anus or entire digestive system is inhabited by microbes. But when people talk about the microbiome, they're normally referring to the group of bacteria that live within our large intestine or colon. That's where most of our gut microbiome live. And that's the densest community. There are trillions of microbes living within our colon, and they're busy doing lots of important things for our physiology. And and just to be fair, or just to be complete rather, there are also other microbiomes in our body, like our lungs or skin. Is that accurate? Yeah, so, you know, we live in a world that's just filled with microbes. So basically any place that a microbe can find to live, it will live there. So there are microbes in our nose, there are microbes in our mouth, and our lungs, all over our skin. The reason why so many people talk about the microbiome in reference to the gut is that's really where the densest community, that's where the most microbes that live on or in us live is within our large intestine or colon. I've heard some crazy stat that like if you take out all the uh, bacteria like in the human body or something, it would weigh like several pounds. Is that is that true if you just globbed it all together? 
Yeah. So I've heard estimates too that are up to like five or six pounds of our mass is insane. It's crazy. And and, and is it also accurate that the collective DNA in the microbiome of the maybe just the large intestine is accounts for more than anything our parents gave us or all of our cells put together or sort of our native cells? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you count up all the genes associated with the human genome and compare that to all the genes associated with our microbiome, we're actually more than 99% (laughs) microbes. So we have like 100 times more microbial genes than human genes. It's so crazy because they're so imperceptible. You and I went to a a lecture when I went back to a college reunion, and they they bring out the best professors and they, they talk about their areas. And the there's a microbiologist who spoke and he basically concluded that we like think we're human <laughs> and 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 we think we're in charge but we are just like no we're just like we're here at the behest of the microbes oh my god that is so scary. okay <laughs> yes so on that note it's a great segue into my next question which was what do we know that the microbiome controls so if you just heard there's microbes in your gut right you'd be like okay yeah that makes sense they have to digest stuff whatever right but i feel like every single paper you read now it, when they suggest the mechanism for how something works in the human body, it's like through the microbiome. Da, 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 it's like it's just become like the mechanism for everything. I feel like now. So, what exactly does the microbiome affect in your body? Yeah, I mean, I think people really need to think of themselves as composite organisms. We're an organism that is a combination of both human cells and microbial cells. And the microbial aspect of our body is really integrated into all aspects of our physiology and health. So the microbiome we know is important in digesting food that we eat, but that's really just one of the functions that it performs because it is so closely associated with our own human cells it's integrated into things like our immune system. So how quickly we're able to fight off an infection or whether we develop an autoimmune disease can be dictated by the microbes within our gut. It's also integrated into our metabolism. So how quickly you uh, burn calories, whether the breakfast that you ate is like burned versus stored as fat can be dictated by the microbes within your gut. And even there's a connection between our microbiome and our brain. So there's been a lot of recent connections between the microbiome and mood disorders, things like depression, anxiety. So there's really almost no aspect of our physiology that isn't touched in some way by our gut microbes. So they really are integrated into sort of all facets of our biology. So maybe just dig down a little bit more on the brain connection. There's the age-old expression, I, I sort of, I feel it in my gut, or I, I sort of, I know it in my gut, or I've got sense. Um, but is, is the science like the serotonin that the microbiomes are producing? What more can we, do we know about this? Yeah, I mean, I think we're just starting to understand these connections. I mean, the microbiome is responsible for a lot of serotonin um, production, but whether that's just to help with GI motility and helping contents transit through the gut versus um, serotonin signaling that goes on in the brain. The one thing that we do know is that these microbes within our gut are creating a huge number of small molecules, little chemicals that are a byproduct of the chemical reactions, the fermentation that they're doing within the gut to survive. And we know that many of those small molecules, those chemicals are being absorbed into our bloodstream 
and circulating throughout our circulation. This is part of the mechanism for why something that happens in the gut can be sensed in other parts of our body. And we know that some of those molecules can also pass through the blood-brain barrier. So that's an indication that there is this communication, chemical signaling that's occurring between gut bacteria and the brain. How that communication plays out on a molecular level and what sort of signals are being sent, we're just now beginning to investigate, but it's clear that there is this two-way crosstalk between the gut and the brain. And I think it is really interesting that people talk about like a gut feeling and a gut sense, because now we're starting to understand that that's an actual thing that's happening. There's actual communication on a molecular level between our gut and our brain. Now that so many more people are talking about the microbiome, it's a good and a bad thing in the sense that, like, I think people are much more aware that their microbiome matters. But at the same time, there's a lot of buzzwords that I think people learn that then they just kind of like regurgitate and it's kind of unclear what things are actually supported by science or not. So one of those things I want to talk about was actually leaky gut. Is leaky gut a real thing? And if so, what is it? And like, wh what do we know about it so far? Yeah, I think leaky gut was a term that was sort of a catch-all for, you know, people that were having gut disturbances and didn't really know, you know, there wasn't any sort of test that was telling them that there was anything wrong. And I think a lot of people in the medical community was like, oh, maybe it's not a real thing or it's just this funny catch-all term. But I think now there is starting to be more understanding that the microbes within our gut are an important aspect of our biology, but we need to keep our body's in a constant sort of, I wouldn't say battle, but just like a communication with our gut microbes and making sure that they stay within our gut and don't transit into, say, our bloodstream. Because the last thing you want is bacteria from your gut entering your bloodstream and creating an infection. That would be a really bad thing to happen. So the immune system and, and the gut bacteria are in this constant conversation to make sure that the gut bacteria stay within the confines of the gut. And there are many mechanisms that allow that to happen one of which is this mucus lining that our intestinal wall secretes, and that keeps the gut bacteria in the spot they're supposed to stay in. Um, and there's evidence that when that mucus lining gets degraded, say if your diet isn't sufficient or there's other things happening in your health that degrades that mucus lining, that bacteria get closer and closer to the um, intestinal wall. And that's a really bad thing from the standpoint of the host, the human host, because they don't want microbes transiting through. And so that can set off alarm bells in the immune system, that can lead to inflammation, that can lead to, you know, people not feeling well. So I think we're starting to think of leaky gut as an environment that's set up where there are signals or microbes or compounds that the microbes are secreting that are transiting the gut lining or that mucus lining that really shouldn't do that. So there are, there are things that are, are getting too close to the intestinal wall. So in that way, you know, it's leaking across and that can cause um, some, you know, distress or, or potentially lead to disease. So I, th I think we're starting to get a more molecular understanding of what leaky gut is, um, but it still is a sort of amorphous um, diagnosis or amorphous uh, term that we don't 
really have a good test to say, oh, you have leaky gut or, you know, this blood test is telling us that there are too many things leaking out of your gut. And is there any evidence to suggest that, like, the environment we're in today is somehow promoting more leaky gut? Because I feel like as I've gotten older, I've heard more and more people talk about, like, gluten intolerances or, like, autoimmune issues or whatever, and it all seems to be gut-related. Whereas, like, when I was younger, I don't know if it just wasn't as well-known or if it actually, like, there is something that in the food we're eating or something that's making it worse. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a lot of evidence that sort of modern Western society and the lifestyle that we're living now is causing harm to the gut microbiome. And this is a result of lots of things. Diet you talked about is is one of the major things. We know that we're eating a diet now that's not as conducive to a healthy microbiome than we did in the past before there was things like ultra-processed foods. We know Diets that are low in dietary fiber are really bad. Diets that are really high in artificial sweeteners or things like emulsifiers or these other new compounds that we're putting into ultra-processed food, a lot of those have really negative impacts on the gut microbiome. So diet is a really important factor in dictating what the microbiome is doing. Um, We also know that overuse of antibiotics have been really negative to the gut microbiome. Obviously, my... Uh, antibiotics are incredibly important, but it's clear that we have overused them and used them in, in situations that they were not really required for. And and every time you take antibiotics, it's it can be very negative for your gut microbiome. So we really want to reserve those for, for the most important times. Things like sanitation. I mean, you know, before... We had things like super clean water and and highly sanitized environments. We were constantly being exposed to environmental microbes. Obviously, some of those can be very bad. So you don't want to be exposed to things like cholera or, you know, there's a lot of benefits to sanitizing your environment. But we also have to keep in mind that there are a lot of good microbes out there and we need to make sure that we're exposing ourselves to those good microbes So all that is to say um, is that this Western lifestyle has been um, very hard on the gut microbiome. It's just not an environment that the gut microbiome evolved to live in. And it's struggling now to maintain the the symbiotic connection that it had with our human genome and and our human body. And I think the increase in things like metabolic syndrome, autoimmune diseases, allergies, all these things in many ways are tied to the deterioration that's happened in our gut microbiome as we've adopted these lifestyle changes. And so a lot of what we're trying to understand now is how can we bring back a healthy gut microbiome without exposing ourselves to pathogenic microbes? We still need to be able to take antibiotics. We still wanna be able to drink clean water, but how can we do those things and protect our microbiome so that we can um, stem this rise in these non-communicable chronic diseases that are just um, really rising in, in Western countries so rapidly now. I've heard you talk several times, and I'm always impressed by these slides about uh, people emigrating from one area to another. So they go, f- they come to presumably a more industrialized environment in the in the US and so I'm going to ask you just to sort of comment on how we can track the change in their gut microbiome and then my added question which I I've, I 
love to hear the answer to, of course, is what if they went back? You know, and and was there there are folks coming to a more industrialized area? Is there any studies of people actually going back the other way, and and what happens to their microbiome? Yeah, there have been a lot of really interesting studies looking at immigration into the United States and what that does to the gut microbiome. We see that as people immigrate to the United States or other Western countries that, for example, one of the things that happens is their gut microbiota diversity decreases. So microbiome diversity is something that we pay attention to because it's in general associated with health. You want lots of different species of microbes living in your gut. You can think of your microbiome as like an ecosystem and you want the, that diversity in that ecosystem to be very high. And as people immigrate to industrialized countries, we watch, uh, we can see the diversity of microbes go down. So species of microbes basically die off when the people that they inhabit adopt an industrial lifestyle. The other thing that we see is an increase in um, the genes involved in uh, responding to oxidative stress within the gut microbiome. So as people live an industrialized lifestyle, what the microbiome does is increase genes that are helpful in dealing with things like oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is something that happens when you're in a state of inflammation, when there's an immune system imbalance. And so this is an indication to us that as people um, industrialize, that there's more oxidative stress in the gut, there's more inflammation, and we think that's um, a result of lifestyle. So all this shift to industrialized lifestyle we see is really negatively impacting the microbiome. I don't know of a lot of studies of people then going back to non-industrialized lifestyles and, and what that would do to the gut. The, you know, we've talked about a lot of sort of depressing things about negative things <laughs> that can happen to your gut microbiome. But, you know, the I think the upside here is that the microbiome, because it is so sensitive to changes in environment, changes to our lifestyle, um, can also really change for the good for it in a better way if we adopt better lifestyle choices. So just as quickly as our microbiome can deteriorate as a result of a bad diet or too many antibiotics, it can go the other way too. So my guess would be, you know, if, if people went back to a non-industrialized lifestyle or just adopted aspects of non-industrialized lifestyle, for example, you know, eating a high fiber diet, exposing yourself to beneficial microbes like those that can be found in fermented food, that we can, you know, rebuild this community in a more healthful way. Um, n not to stick to the depressing things. I do want to get to, the, <laughs> I want to get to the things that we should do to improve our microbiome. That's going to be a big portion of what we talk about, but I have to pick on the artificial sweeteners because like as someone who was very into fitness, I was taking like pre-workout protein powders, protein bars, BCAAs every day. And every single one of those things is artificial, artificially sweetened. And I, you know, I would look up like, are these things good for you? And there's like kind of two camps where it was people saying, well, there's no, there hasn't been any studies proving that these are bad in humans, right? Like the only studies that show they're bad, they're in extremely high doses and they're in animals and humans would never ingest that much. And so it, blah, 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 it's silly. But then I would see like all of these sweeteners have been like taken off the market on and off multiple times in the past, you know, few decades. And I'd be like, I don't know, something about this like just doesn't feel right. The fact that like it's sweet, but like there's no repercussions. I don't know. It feels kind of weird. But now we have all this new science about how they affect the gut. So can we talk about 
like what do artificial sweeteners do to the gut and I guess the downsides of artificial sweeteners? Yeah, there have been some good studies on um, artificial sweeteners and actually emulsifiers. So these are like these gums that you see a lot of times in in processed food. And um, in both cases, when, you know, some of these are in animal studies, some of them are in humans. When people ingest a lot of these things, um, we see negative impacts on the gut microbiome, both like decrease in beneficial species. So the beneficial species just become less abundant as people consume these and an increase in the abundance of species in the gut that we we view as not necessarily beneficial or maybe even harmful. You know, the, the difficult thing that, you know, as somebody that works in a lab that studies diet and health and the microbiome is it's really hard to get people to sign up for a 10-year diet intervention trial. Yeah. Those people, <laughs> if they're going to do a diet intervention trial, it's like maybe three months, six months is kind of a long one. So the way that a lot of these studies are done is like you give high amounts or you try to get people to eat as much as possible of a certain thing and then follow them for three or six months. But, you know, when you think of most like chronic diseases, those in general don't develop in three or six months. You know, those can take years or decades to develop. So, you know, we do these small dietary interventions. We look for markers to say, okay, is this person's immune system going in a bad direction or metabolism going in a bad bad direction? And we try to infer, you know, if this person ate this diet for five, 10 years, then what would happen? And, And I think that's where a lot of people get kind of lost in looking at diet data is they they look at these small studies there's a little effect and people think oh it's not it's not that big of a deal it's not really doing that much but you have to remember like some of these dietary patterns people have for decades you know uh, throughout their life and so even net small impacts on the gut microbiome or other health markers if you expand that over many years can really add up to a um a very negative impact on on a person's health And so when people are taking these artificial sweeteners, obviously a lot of the time it's to replace sugar. And we know that like, you know, people in Westernized societies especially drink a lot of sugary beverages and have really high sugar diets. Do we know if eating high amounts of sugar like impacts the gut microbiome negatively and does it make you crave more sugar? Like I think I heard ones that like you increase a certain bacteria and then it makes you want more sugar or something like that. But I don't know if that's actually true or not. Yeah, I mean... Sugars are in, you know, outside of the gut microbiome have been demonstrated to be a negative thing if you consume a lot of them. And and I think because of that, people, sugars are a type of carbohydrate. And so people now just kind of villainize carbohydrates. And you see a lot of people having this like low or no carb diet to try to avoid these simple sugars. But the gut microbiome really relies on carbohydrates, but they just rely on a very specific type of carbohydrates called complex carbohydrates. So these are things like dietary fibers that are carbohydrates, but they don't increase your blood sugar the way that a simple sugar would. So, you know, the type of sugar that's in just table sugar or the sugars that you um, have in like candy or baked goods or those kinds of things. And so anytime someone asks me like, well, is sugar bad or, you know, how much sugar should I eat? You have to remember there's like only so many calories that you can eat in a day and feel full. And so if you're eating a lot of sugar, that could be, have a negative impact, but the negative impact could be not just from eating sugar, but it's 
the fact that you're not eating something else. Right. We know that the gut microbiome really thrives on dietary fiber and like a lot of dietary fiber. Like it wants <laughs> for sure the the recommended daily allowance. And we think that that may even be too low. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 40, 50 grams of dietary fiber um, may be what we're striving to get. And to eat 40 or 50 grams of dietary fiber, like that's a lot of food. It's a lot like, of you vegetables. You just get full yeah. from eating that. Yeah. And so the question is, if you're eating that much dietary fiber, like you don't really have a lot of space to be loading up on sugary foods as well. So, you know, I think people, instead of focusing on here are the bad things that I shouldn't eat, focusing instead of like, here are all the good things and eating as much of those as possible and trying to get full on those things. Um, and then it just doesn't really leave a lot of space for the, you know, the kind of packaged food, high sugar, high fat foods. Yeah, I was just on one of our membership episodes. Remember this idea was the other day? Mm -hmm. I was just saying that like, to me, it's so much easier to eat better when I'm like, I have to get all my vegetables in today. And I know if I eat this now, like I'm not going to be hungry enough to eat like the big salad I usually would have at dinner. So I'm like, oh, like I really want to make sure I eat my whole salad. And so like that to me feels so like it, it's so much easier than being like, oh, no, like I can't have any of these like sugary things. Like and then, of course, I always end up having it because I'm just like, I'm my own boss. I can have whatever I want. You know what I mean? So I feel like choosing to add more stuff in instead of take stuff away kind of feels like a more successful strategy in the long term mentally for improving your diet. Yeah. And I think that it's really hard. Like I just, I don't want to make it seem like, oh, just focus on eating lots of fiber and just eat lots of vegetables. Like it, we live in a food environment that makes that decision very hard. One of the groups that we study um, their microbiome is this group of hunter gatherers that lives in Tanzania um, called the Hadza. Oh my God. We had and, Herman you know, Ponser on the podcast. He talked about the Hadza oh. metabolism. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this group is so interesting because they, you know, have a microbiome that looks very different from ours and one that we think is probably, you know, a microbiome that looks similar to how all human microbiomes looked before, you know, we invented Cheetos and all that other stuff. <laughs> and, and what we see with the, with the Hadzas, they eat a very high fiber diet, you know, lots of plants. That's just a huge part of their diet. But it's not that they eat that amount because they just love all the tubers and, and plants that they can find. Like that's just the diet that they have access to. And I think what's happened is we've made it so easy in our society to get cheap, high sugar, high fat food. And that's the food that from an evolutionary standpoint, like our brain really craves. So I always think about um, like the Hadza, for example, if you ask them what their favorite food is, at the top of their list is honey. They just love honey. But for them to get honey, they have to, you know, start a fire, climb up a tree, because a lot of the bees' nests that they raise are, are up in these trees, smoke out these bees <laughs> as they're getting stung, reaching their hand in, pulling out, you know, the honeycomb. Oh my Sometimes God. they fall. Like it's a really dangerous endeavor. Yeah. And I always think, if I had to do that every time <laughs> I wanted like a cookie, I would just eat less of that, yeah. right? And so I think we just have to think about ways to incorporate ways to make getting those bad foods hard. So <laughs> like 
I, you know, when I'm at the grocery store, I just like, I try to stay out of that aisle. Like, I don't even want to look at it because I know that the like evolutionary part of my brain is going to be like, oh, lots of sugar, lots of calories, lots of fat. I want that. And the thinking part of my brain's like, just don't even look, just don't go there. Because I, you know, I just don't want to get into that battle. This is why Eddie keeps his ice cream in the basement, in the basement famously. There, there, there's, there's also, you're probably familiar with the, the plan to just in a cafeteria label the foods like red, yellow, green, and the green salady high fiber foods are in the front. And then you have the foods that eh, they're okay, but the salad is still better. And then you have the, um, the chocolate pudding with a little red symbol on it. You can have it, except it's in the back of the cooler and you have to reach past the salad <laughs> and, and everything else to get to it. And it's, that's still easier than climbing up a tree with a burning <laughs> stick and, <laughs> and getting stung. And we'll be right back. Food We Need to Talk is funded by a grant from the Ardmore Institute of Health, the home of Full Plate Living. Full Plate Living helps you add more whole, plant-based foods to meals you're already eating. These are foods you're already familiar with, apples, beans, strawberries, and avocados. It's a small step approach that can lead to big health outcomes. Full Plate Living includes weekly recipes and programs for weight loss, meal makeovers, and better blood sugar management. Best of all, Full Plate Living is a free service of the Ardmore Institute of Health. Sign up for free at fullplateliving.org. Dr. Sonnenberg, um, you mentioned briefly fermented foods. And uh, that's certainly become popular. Well, it's always been popular, but could you get into a little bit more detail about what that means and how much and how many times a day? And why are they good for you? We recently did a study, you know, one of these dietary intervention studies where we had people, you know, just try to eat as much fermented food as they could. These people got up to like five or six servings of fermented food per day. When people did this, we monitored their microbiome and also aspects of their immune system. And we found that as people started consuming fermented foods, their microbiome diversity increased. So they got more species of microbes in their gut, which we view as a beneficial thing. We thought, oh, maybe it's the microbes they're consuming in the fermented food. So we checked that and it actually wasn't, which is kind wow. of baffling. Yeah. So there's just something about consuming fermented food that makes your microbiome receptive to receiving new species. The other amazing thing we saw is that, uh, you know, across the study, we saw a cohort-wide decrease in inflammatory markers. And we know that one of the drivers of a lot of Western disease is just too high levels of inflammation. So just by consuming fermented foods, these people didn't change any other aspect of their diet we saw decreases in the level of inflammation within these participants. So we think, you know, this was just a six-week study. We think spread over many years, this could really have a huge impact in the propensity of developing, you know, a lot of Western disease if people maintain this fermented food diet. So we're just starting to understand why fermented food is so important. And and part of it has to do with the fact that, you know, unlike probiotics, which are just bacteria, fermented food 
contains bacteria. It contains all the chemical compounds that these bacteria made in the food as they were fermenting it. A lot of these chemical compounds look almost like drug-like molecules. So we think that even those may be having an important impact. The other amazing thing about fermented food is, you know, what the microbes are doing when they're fermenting food is they're consuming all the simple sugars in that food. Mm. So for example, yogurt, right? There's a lot of simple sugar in milk. You add microbes to that, the microbes eat all the sugars in the milk. And instead of having a bunch of lactose and other types of sugars, now they've created lactic acid. That's what makes yogurt, that kind of tangy flavor. Mm -hmm. So it's not only created molecules that we think are beneficial, it's also removed a lot of simple sugars, a lot of molecules that we know are bad. So they're really like doing this amazing job on this food. And we think, you know, turning these foods into, you know, these really beneficial things to consume. I can just see some of our listeners reaching into the fridge now for a beer saying, well, that's fermented. (laughs) Can yeah, you? <laughs> what are examples of fermented foods? And, and ones that really aren't. or Yeah, like does kombucha count? That's that's an important question there. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, kombucha was was in our study. And, and so participants were eating kombucha or drinking kombucha, and um, we were still seeing the beneficial effects. There are kind of like two main types of fermented food. And um, kombucha is a type of fermented food that creates acetic acid. And then there are other types of fermented food that make lactic acid. So that would be like vegetable ferments, like kimchi, sauerkraut, and dairy ferments make lactic acid. So, you know, we don't really understand what the magic ingredient in fermented foods are. So I would recommend to people if they're interested in trying fermented foods to try to get a little bit of each, like have some kombucha, then you get some of that acetic acid ferment, and then also maybe vegetable or dairy ferments. So you get the lactic acid-based ferments as well. Just kind of mix it up until until we understand really what is best. And also, you know, it could be, one thing I didn't mention is the microbiome is highly individualized. So each person has a unique microbiome. So it could be that For certain people's microbiome, this type of ferment is better or this type of diet might be a little bit better than another microbiome. And so we're not really at a point yet where we can look at your microbiome and say you should eat X, Y, and Z. So until we get to that point, just having a variety of things so that you're more likely to hit upon um, either the ferment or the the diet that really is the best match for your microbiome. But, but could you detail um, or just advise us why beer and like spirits like are not? Oh yeah, don't count. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in our study, we were very interested in making sure that there were live microbes there. So, uh, in a lot of beer and wine, they filtered out the live microbes, so you're only getting the fermentation product and not necessarily the live microbes. In our study, we didn't allow beer and wine to be um, counted as a fermented food, whether that would potentially impact a person's microbiome or immune system, I don't think has been studied really carefully. So for our uh, purposes, like we really count fermented foods are ones that have live and active microbes and actually performed a fermentation reaction. So the other Unfortunately, 
the fermented food landscape in the grocery store has just gotten so confusing. There's so many foods out there now that they, you know, it'll be like a peanut butter and then they add bacteria to it. <laughs> and then people think, oh, well, this oh is fermented God. because it says there's microbes oh, in it. Jesus. And it's like, no, it's that they weren't, they were just added after the fact. So really trying to find things that were actively fermented by the microbes in the food um, is really what we're talking about when we talk about fermented food. So does tempeh count? It's a cultured, that's cultured tofu, right? Yeah, yeah. Tempeh counts, yeah. So on that note of bacteria being added to things, gut supplements. Everybody is obsessed. Everybody loves to take the gut supplements. I don't even know, like, how they decide what bacteria they're putting in them. Like, how do they know which ones you need? Everybody's different, da-da-da. Can we talk about, like, should we all be taking gut supplements or should we just, like, skip it? What is the science there? I think the science is fairly clear that as a broad recommendation, taking these supplements or probiotics is not generally advisable. There may be certain conditions where adding a, a probiotic may be beneficial, but for the average person that's just you know trying to improve their health, I don't think there's any evidence that probiotics are beneficial. And I think there's even some evidence that certain probiotics can be detrimental to your health. And a lot of the studies that we're doing in our lab now were, you know, very, obviously very interested in fermented food just because it was like such a big signal in our study. It just did so many good things for people's health. Um, we've started trying to tease apart the different aspects of fermented food. And so one of the studies we've been doing is like actually filtering out the bacteria and just having the fermentation products like the lactic acid and all the other things that, that the microbes are making in the fermented food. And we see that that actually is providing some benefit. And I just think that if you only take a probiotic supplement, you're just getting those microbes. You're not getting all the other chemicals that they have made in the fermented food or however made, they made the probiotics. So you, you may actually be missing out on the, the best part of what these microbes can provide. So I think, you know, sticking with things like fermented food, that really is this like magic soup of microbes and fer fermentation products and lower sugar. I think it's just so tough to try to replicate that in a supplement or, a, you know, some sort of I, I, I just Other I, I, I just want to compliment you on you gently taking down a seven billion dollar <laughs> probiotic. I feel so industry. vindicated. I'm like, oh, thank God, I don't take probiotics. So, so, well, gent so I mean, gently. I know. That was, yeah, it was very in, kind. In fairness, I mean, there are some indications where they've done studies and shown that this particular probiotic mm -hmm. can be beneficial. So, I think you know, if you do have an issue, it's worth having a conversation with your physician and say. Look, are there any studies out there about probiotics benefiting whatever, you know, issue you're having? And you know, I get emails all the time from people that are like, oh, I found this probiotic and it really, you know, I was having constipation issues and it's really helping me, you know, with my bowel movements. And if that's the case, great. Like, it, I just think that really thinking that they are, um, you know, going to be this panacea, this like way to solve everybody's uh, gut issues is, is just not the way to think about it. So the speed with which innovation percolates through American medicine has been studied. And the number that sticks in my head is it takes only about 17 years for something to be realized and then put into practice. So several <laughs> years ago, it started to become a standard that when you gave antibiotics, you would also give acidophilus, I guess, as a oh. probiotic. Is that one of the ones that 
that works? Or are we just in, you know, in about 15 years going to undo that because the evidence is not there? What's, what's your, your take on that? I think we're getting ready to undo <gasps> that. I think there was recently a study where they looked at providing probiotics after antibiotic usage, and it looked like that slowed down the recovery of the microbiome. Whoa. So I think this just kind of knee jerk wow. of taking probiotics after antibiotics is looking like not not the path forward. So when Thank we you. spoke, <laughs> I know, yeah. When we spoke a couple years ago, I remember, I think the analogy you gave me was like, probiotics are kind of a good idea in theory, but in reality, because we don't know that much about what bacteria strains each person needs, because we all have different microbiomes and we, we're lacking in different bacteria and whatever, that you said it was like going to the drugstore when you're sick and just grabbing your random medication and just being like, oh yeah, maybe this one will work. <laughs> but it's like, we have no idea like which one you need and why and whatever. Yeah. And that's why I always go back to things like fermented food, because especially like these traditionally fermented foods, like kimchi and sour crowd and even, you know, some like kefir, some types of yogurt, like they, they don't just have one or two types of microbes, which are often like what's in a supplement. They will have, you know, many tens, dozens of microbes. And so your chance of that one of those or a couple of those really is a good match for your microbiome is much higher than just, you know, picking one off the shelf. The other thing is, you know, the number of the, the species that have been approved for use in supplements is really very limited. So it's not like there's a whole assortment of microbes that you can try. You're really stuck with the, the handful that exist and have been given sort of this generally regarded as safe status. Um, whereas in fermented foods, you, you know, there's just there can be so many types of microbes there, many of which aren't necessarily available as a probiotic supplement. So, and they're delicious. So why not start there? <laughs> <laughs> and if you do get put on antibiotics, do you have to be extra vigilant afterwards to be eating like even more fermented foods than you were before because you're in this rebuilding phase of your microbiome? And how long does it take for it to go back to normal afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think people need to be aware that after a round of antibiotics, like their gut microbiome has taken a pretty serious hit and they just have to be um, conscious of that. So, you know, boosting your fiber intake, because we know that the gut microbiome really relies on dietary fiber. That's the fuel that that keeps it going. So, you know, getting as much dietary fiber as you can during that time period after antibiotic usage can really help regrow that community. And then I think, you know, fermented foods, we know that antibiotics can kill a lot of species of microbes within the gut. And we know that fermented foods makes your gut receptive to new species. So that could be a path forward to uh, regrowing that, that community after antibiotic usage. Just being aware, I think even just understanding that Obviously, there are times where we absolutely have to take antibiotics, and I don't want people to think that I'm saying don't take antibiotics because they're definitely very important. Just be mindful of the fact that this was really tough on your gut microbiome. How can I nurse it back to health now? How can I incorporate as many fermented foods in this very delicate period of time right now? How can I increase my fermented food consumption to really get it back to a healthy place? And I think, you know, a lot of studies have shown that the gut microbiome is can be highly resilient. So this doesn't, it's not like it necessarily takes months to regrow. It can start regrowing within days or weeks, but just, you know, be mindful of the fact that um, it's not in a good place right after your, your round of antibiotics. 
And um, before we start wrapping up, I just also had a question about obesity in the microbiome. So I've seen some like crazy studies while they do a fecal transplant. And if I'm correct, I think you're basically like taking a pill with somebody else's like I don't, I don't want to say poop. But I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, something like that or whatever. So basically, like, a portion of their microbiome is being transplanted into your microbiome or whatever. And like, I, I think this was in rodents, so maybe it wasn't in humans. But like, the obese mice became basically normal weight, and like when they did the opposite, the normal mice would become obese just from transferring microbiomes. Have any of those studies been replicated in humans? And if so, like, what is the mechanism by which the microbiome is impacting obesity, which we think of as like this calorie sort of equation? Yeah, I mean, I think when those studies came out, it was just this real eye-opener that, oh my gosh, the microbiome is so much more important than we realized. It really is integrated into metabolism, which isn't something that people think about. You think of the microbiome and digestion, but it does in many ways kind of set the dial on our, basically how our body processes calories. And so, you know, there have been many, many mouse studies now showing that if you transplant a microbiome from an obese mouse into a lean mouse, even if that lean mouse doesn't change the number of calories that they're consuming, that lean mouse starts gaining weight. So that's an indication that the microbiome alone can cause weight gain. Um, There have been a couple sort of one-off studies where they've done fecal transplants for treating a condition like C. difficile-associated colitis. And there was one case where the woman was lean, but her fecal transplant donor was overweight and she had unexplained weight gain after that fecal transplant. So, you know, that's a just a one person study, but it is an indication that humans like mice can have weight gain as a result of the microbiome. There have been a lot of studies since then because people thought, well, if you can gain weight with an obese microbiome, maybe you can lose weight that way. And so there's been a bunch of clinical trials where they've tried doing fecal transplants um, from lean donors into uh, obese individuals in the hopes that that would help them lose weight. And that unfortunately, that isn't like a magic bullet, like everybody was hoping. So I think it, it, it is going to be complex. Like clearly our microbiome is very integrated into our physiology, but changing the microbiome via fecal transplant or other types of things like that is more challenging maybe than people originally thought. So um I'm not sure that fecal transplants are going to be the magic treatment to solve obesity or really other conditions that that maybe people thought it it would be. What, What happens when you're prepping for a colonoscopy? So you're cleaning out your gut as much as as is humanly possible. What happens to the microbiome when you when you get rid of the fecal matter? That's a good question. You know, I'm not, I'm sure people have looked into this. I'm not familiar with those studies. My guess is it, you know, it would be a pretty dramatic effect. I mean, maybe something similar uh, in a way to an antibiotic treatment because it's a really like severe flushing Mm -hmm. of, of, of your contents. I mean, we know that the microbiome has a way of clinging to that mucus lining. So it, it can hang on, but they're it for sure would require a regrowth period. So um, it's it's probably a similar thing. Like after a, a colonoscopy, you just need to really boost your fiber fermented food intake because there's probably a period of regrowth that needs to happen. 
Again, I want to compliment your uh, dis- your gentle description of the, quote, severe flushing that goes on <laughs> <laughs> as someone old enough to have gone through this several times. Oh, my God. So, um, so this uh, podcast, we have named Food We Need to Talk, and yet, oh, I don't know, in dozens and dozens of episodes, I don't think we've gone too many without um, talking about exercise. Is there data or any studies that you know or or general knowledge about how physical activity moving your body, lifting weights affects your gut. I think we know that it helps with motility, but anything more on that? Yeah, as as far as I know, there hasn't been like a really controlled study where they only changed exercise. So there have been a lot of studies looking at like athletes or people that are physically active and their microbiome. Um, Unfortunately, those people also, or not unfortunately, but you know, these people also tend to just have maybe better diets. And so whether the differences in the microbiome between people, athletic people or people that work out versus not is really hard to ascribe specifically to um, exercise. Um, As you mentioned, we know that exercise increases gut motility. And the one thing that we do know is that changes in gut motility can change the microbiome. So if you just do like a you know, a study where you give people like a laxative or something for an extended period of time, like that will change the community. So by exercising and increasing your motility, you are changing the environment within the gut and probably making it um, more receptive to to more beneficial species. But I, I don't know if anyone's looked at diet or exercise particularly. You know, the one thing that I will say, like studying the gut microbiome um, for the past 20 years, I've really gained an appreciation for just how integrated all aspects of our health are. When we first started studying the microbiome, I thought of it like, okay, I'm going to understand this thing that's happening in the gut and I'm going to understand how it, you know, takes fiber and turns it into energy. And the longer that I study it, the more that I realize like, these microbes are really, they're doing so much and they're integrated into so much. And so I think people just need to think of our health in a more integrated, holistic sense. Maybe the effect of something like exercise isn't a direct effect on the microbiome, but it could be doing other things that say, make you more likely to eat healthy food. And then that has a direct impact on the microbiome. So, you know, just doing things that we know are healthful and thinking about it in a sort of integrated sense, I think is really the best way just to think about ways to improve our health. We've covered so far like the eating portion. So basically eating a lot of fiber and fermented foods and then um, limiting your artificial sweeteners as much as possible. And then we've kind of talked about like the effects antibiotics can have. Are there any other sort of things that are pretty within our control that we, you know, do daily that impact our microbiome? Like what are non-food things or is it mostly just the food stuff? I would say, you know, because of our highly sanitized environment that we live in, we have to be thinking about ways to expose ourselves to microbes that doesn't open us up to infection. So, you know, food is one way to do it. Fermented food is a great way to do it. But another way that I like to think about it is just getting outside and getting into nature. So, you know, when you're outside, maybe, you know, on a walk or something, you're 
breathing in air. Some of that air may have microbes in it. As it gets trapped in our mucus cavity within our nose, sometimes we swallow that. And that's a method of transmission of microbes into our gut. That's a way of exposing our body to microbes that isn't like a huge risk of a, a pathogenic infection. So I think about things like gardening, um, interacting with, I, like, for example, I have a dog, I let him go outside, I pet him all the time. You know, we people, we know that pets are a good way of transmitting um, environmental microbes back to us. So just thinking about ways of incorporating nature into your daily life can be another way to expose ourselves to microbes. Because really, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, our body is expecting to be in a constant dialogue with bacteria, both inside our body and outside our body. And as we've cleaned our environment and removed the bacteria outside of our environment, there's an aspect of our physiology that's confused. It's like, wait a minute, there, I'm supposed to be interacting with microbes. Where are all these microbes now? And I think that could be at the root of a lot of misregulation of the immune system that can lead to a lot of, um, you know, Western disease. So being outside, putting your hands in dirt, interacting with your pet, figuring out how to expose yourself to microbes in a way that doesn't expose you to infection, but continues that dialogue that we've had for the entirety of our evolution of us and our microbial world. Okay, so scientifically, we all have to get outside and, and play in dirt. <laughs> Absolutely. And, 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 and there's just one more that strikes me as we wrap up here, as you talk about the your revelation that after 20 years, that maybe this actually is more integrated. There's a lot more data out there now about how important it is for us to be with other people. And that doesn't include Zoom. <laughs> and, and, I'm, and I'm, you know, just sort of picturing that, um, Yuna and I are in the same room. We've been breathing the same air. It's a studio that is soundproof and airproof. <laughs> yeah. And and so just being with other people, I, I suspect that there's a transmission of microbes as well. Absolutely. Yeah. People, long-term inhabitants, you know, start looking, their microbiomes start looking alike. So there for sure is a lot of transmission between people. But I do think that that's declining over time as we you know, shake someone's hand and then instantly go to the hand sanitizer, which, you know, there may be right. cases where that's a good idea. Um, but, you know, we just just be aware that we need to be exposed to microbes. How can we do that? Think of ways of how we can do that and, and not risk getting an infection. Thank you so much to Professor Sonnenberg for coming on the podcast. We will link to her work on our website. And now we want to cover a deeply related topic to the microbiome, and that is fiber. Yuna, there is no better person to talk about this with than Amy Hannes from Full Plate Living. And if you've been listening to this podcast for even a couple of episodes, you will notice <laughs> that Full Plate Living is one of the main sponsors of this podcast. It's like the first thing you hear every time you start an episode. It's yes. like, brought to you by Full Plate Living. So maybe we'll take a few minutes to describe what Full Plate Living is and how it's going to help you, if you wish, to increase your fiber intake. So we know that having a high-fiber diet increases the diversity in your microbiome, but let's talk about some of the other benefits of fiber. I love how the American Heart Association, they say that it can protect us against, which to me is heartwarming, of course, and especially it can help us, you know, prevent heart disease and diabetes, diverticulitis, and 
you know, certain colon cancers, and it can definitely help us in controlling our blood sugars and also our weight. You may be wondering, all right, what exactly is fiber? Fiber is actually a carbohydrate that is found only in plant foods, and our body actually cannot digest it. And those, as you said, are fruits, vegetables, uh, beans and legumes, nuts and seeds, and whole grains and fruits and all of those wonderful things that we need. Eddie, we've kind of covered this a few times on the podcast, but the types of carbohydrates we often talk about are simple carbohydrates or sugars and complex carbohydrates. Right. Sugars take the least amount of work for your body to digest. Why? It's usually just like one or two molecules bound together, which means that your body can digest them really quickly. Right. So when you eat simple carbohydrates, think sugars, your blood sugar levels can just jump right up. The other carbohydrate we talk about a lot on here is complex carbohydrates. So this is generally what people think of as, quote, healthy carbs, because they take a lot more work for your body to break down. So stuff like sweet potatoes, whole grains, beans, etc. And one of the big reasons why we think of them as, quote, healthier is because they don't cause these crazy swings in your blood sugar. Right. And fiber, we're going to say, is actually almost like a third type of carbohydrate, Unlike simple or complex carbohydrates, it never actually gets digested. <laughs> so I know it's like not the best way to think about this, but I just think of fiber as like tree bark. Like it's like <laughs> these like parts of plants that like you just can't digest. Like I bet if you ate tree bark, it would be like no calories because it's just 100% fiber. Can I, can I just put in a little disclaimer here? This is not a listener Don't challenge. Don't eat tree bark. Do not tag us in videos of you although, eating tree although bark. Although I have, I have this image of walking through the woods and saying if I had to eat tree bark, I'd probably start with like the birch tree. It's got that white kind of like papery. I could munch on that a little bit, oh but uh, I mean, a, a big oh, piece of an oak tree. But wow. it's, it's just like like broccoli stems. Like that's fiber. You don't mean like celery. Like that's fiber. All right. So let's get to the fiber that humans are more likely <laughs> to eat. There are actually two types of fiber. There's soluble and insoluble fiber. Both are healthy, you know, are good, healthy options to have. And what's kind of cool is that plant foods have a combination usually of both. So soluble fiber specifically is dissolvable in water. And those are found in foods like fiber foods, plant foods like oats, black beans, and apples. And insoluble fiber is not dissolvable. Um, this actually helps us move our food through our digestive system, really helping with improving our bowel movements, whether you know it's constipation or anything like that, just in really helping our GI tract. These are found in foods like kale and quinoa and even those apple peels. When we highly process food, it's no surprise that it gets rid of a lot of the fiber, which is part of why ultra-processed food is so easy to overeat. It contains almost no fiber, and fiber is a big part of what helps us feel full. So intuitively, this makes a lot of sense, Yuna. Just think of the way a baked good feels in your mouth. Yummy. As we talk about <laughs> mouthfeel, you don't have to chew it. it could, oh. Just like disintegrates. It's just, right? It's like now versus putting a raw carrot in your mouth. Yeah, it's like, you, you, you could leave it in your mouth for like a week. Nothing would happen. <laughs> Just nothing would happen to it. So 
Chew your carrots. Yeah, chew your carrots <laughs> and thoroughly. And if you do have a baked good, enjoy it. Yeah. So if you're a big smoothie person, the good news is that putting fruits or vegetables in a smoothie actually does not remove the fiber, even though it is a form of processing. But juicing your fruits and vegetables basically removes all the fiber. And that's because like the juice comes out one side and the fiber <laughs> comes, out, comes the, out the other side. Comes out the other side. <laughs> Um, also, the good news, Yuna, and this is one thing I learned from Amy, is that cooking food does not remove the fiber. So if you don't like to eat raw kale. Which, which who does? I do not like to eat raw <laughs> kale. You don't need to eat it just for the fiber. You can cook it down and you're still going to get the fiber. So to recap, fiber helps diversify our microbiome. It can't be digested by the body. It's found in plant foods. As long as we're not juicing the food, we're probably retaining most of it. And fiber helps us feel full and keeps our digestive tract moving. Yuna, let's talk about how much fiber we're actually getting. The average American only eats somewhere between 10 to 15 grams of fiber a day. Minimum recommendations start for adults 25 to 35 grams. At Full Plate Living, we recommend people working up to 40 grams of fiber a day. Oh my gosh, Yuna, can we just talk about this for a second? 10 to 15 grams a day as the average for Americans? Do you realize that one medium bell pepper, that alone has eight grams? Okay, Eddie, literally this just has me wondering, like, how are people going to the bathroom? Like, if, they're getting, <laughs> if you're eating only one bell pepper's worth of fiber, like, I mean, I want to know, but I don't want to know. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, all right. So if you're not eating a lot of fiber, like, let's say, I don't know, you eat. Uh, 10 to 15 grams? No, no. But let's say your diet includes uh, chicken fingers and... Um, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> guys, Eddie. Guys, I knew this guy. Okay. I knew this guy. I dated this guy, I should say. <laughs> I dated this guy who his let's entire diet was chicken fingers and Red Bull. And that's what Eddie is referring to. Oh, my God. And Because I, I remember thinking, like... How is he going to the bathroom? Like how, like I just, I was in awe. Like, I'm, not, I was in I'm not sure, but if he were to add a salad, <laughs> the process may become a little bit easier. So if you're looking to increase your fiber, here's one thing you should know. And that's that you want to increase it slowly. Most of us, if we went to 40 grams of fiber today, we would have massive bloating and gas and we would feel very uncomfortable. And that's what no one wants. So literally you can start this at your next meal. Add one fiber food to your next meal. If you're not the type of person that likes to count things, because let's be honest, who does like to count things? The way Full Plate Living suggests you go about increasing your fiber is in terms of your plate. So we slowly work up to 75% of your plate being specifically foods that are high in both fiber and water. So these are fruits, vegetables, beans, and cooked whole grains. The other 25% really is for anything else you want. We do not have any forbidden foods. So even if it does have fiber, that's great. You know, if you wanted whole wheat bread, that's a great option to put there. If you wanted any type of meat or cheese or dairy or a beverage or something like that, that would fall in a 25% zone. So basically, this just means making three-fourths of your plate those water fiber foods, which I like that they also emphasize water because mm -hmm. water fiber foods help you feel a lot more full because they're just more voluminous. So like part of the reason why vegetables are so filling is because they have so much water in them, so they take up so much more space in your stomach. And that way, you don't have to do any calculations of like how many grams of fiber are in this thing. And, and also, just up. to be clear, when we talk about that, the fiber is not digested. 
the fiber's coming along with all sorts of other wonderful right. things in, in, in the of course, yeah. So you're you're getting all the vitamins, you're 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 getting the minerals, you're getting the other important parts out of the vegetable, out of the fruit, and you're also getting the fiber. Right. It's like one of the added bonuses that comes in fruits and vegetables besides the micronutrients and the other, the minerals and stuff. So I'm so glad we finally got to talk about Full Plate Living because they've been sponsoring the podcast for literally years. I'm sure you guys have been hearing it <laughs> Thank for you, years. Full Plate Living. Yes, thank you, Full Plate Living. It's a completely free program, and literally their mission is to try to get you to eat more fruits and vegetables. So if you want to find out more, you can go to fullplateliving.org. Thank you to Amy Hannes for joining us on this episode. If you want to get bonus episodes, head to foodweneedtotalk.com slash membership or click the link in our show notes. You can find us on Instagram at foodweneedtotalk. You can find me on Instagram at theofficialyuna and Unajada on YouTube and TikTok. You can find Eddie. Cooking his kale really well. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Food We Need to Talk is a production of PRX. Our senior producer is Morgan Flannery. And our producers are Megan Aftermat and Samantha Gatsik. Tommy Bazarian is our mix engineer. Jocelyn Gonzalez is executive producer for PRX Productions. Food We Need to Talk was co-created by Carrie Goldberg, George Hicks, Eddie Phillips, and me. For any personal health questions, please consult your personal health provider. To find out more, go to foodweneedtotalk.com. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Ow, ow. Uh,